Let me ask you now to open up to the book of Exodus. The book of Exodus in chapter 2. This morning, our, our passage from Exodus 2 is, is only three verses. It's the final three verses of the chapter. I just to remind you, Moses is no longer in Egypt. He is a Hebrew man, but he was raised as an Egyptian prince. But because of a reckless act of murder, Moses has now had to leave Egypt. And over the last 40 years of his life, from age 40 to age 80, Moses has settled down in the land of Midian. He has taken a wife, Zipporah. He now has a son, Gershom. He has become a shepherd. He's keeping sheep for his father-in-law, Jethro. But while all of this is happening with Moses in Midian, what's going on back in Egypt? What was happening to the Hebrews in their slavery to the Egyptians while Moses is spending these 40 years in Midian? Well, these final three verses of Exodus 2 are given to us so that we might have an answer to that question. But these three verses do more than that. They teach us about the providence of God. They teach us about prayer. They teach us about the nature of God Himself. And so as we read these final three verses of the chapter, remember, this is the very Word of God to us. And He is speaking to us. So let's read them. The final three verses of Exodus chapter 2, beginning in verse 23. During those many days... The king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. And their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. And God heard their groaning. And God remembered His covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel... God knew. To unpack what God is saying to us here, I want to make six observations from these three verses. And from each observation, we'll draw out a truth that God is teaching us. So six observations, and with each observation will be a truth for us. Are you ready? Here we go. The first observation is this. The Pharaoh who had ordered the death of Moses is now dead. The Pharaoh who had ordered the death of Moses is now dead. We see that at the very beginning of our passage. During those many days, the king of Egypt died. Remember why it is that Moses has fled Egypt. Uh, He is gone because he, though an Egyptian prince killed an Egyptian taskmaster, a man with authority over the Hebrew slaves, 
And Pharaoh had ordered now that Moses be put to death for his crime. But that Pharaoh, who sought Moses' life, has now died. And a new Pharaoh has risen to power. This is paving the way for Moses to return. In Exodus 4, verse 19, God is going to say to Moses, Go back to Egypt, for all the men who were seeking your life are dead. And so Moses outlived those who were against him. And the threat on his life has been removed, not by anything that he did, but by the sheer passing of time. And so here is the first truth that God is teaching us this morning. Sometimes... God's providence smiles upon us by removing our trials from us. Sometimes God's providence smiles upon us by removing our trials from us. In other words, there are times in our lives when we experience trouble and trial. And sometimes we can feel like those trials in our life will will never end But many times that's not at all the case. Many times the trials that God brings into our lives are only there for a season. And then He in His kindness takes them away. God calls us to be faithful under the trials that He places upon us. And in His time, He often removes them from us. This is what we saw with Joseph in the book of Genesis. Joseph was a slave for a time. He was a prisoner for a time. And during those years, and it was many years, Joseph was called to be faithful to God in the midst of his trouble and his trials and his tribulations. And then, at just the right time, God took all of those trials off of Joseph and brought him into a better place. Think about Joseph's father, Jacob. For many years, Jacob lived with terrible grief. We're told that when his his sons came and told him that his beloved son Joseph was dead, he never got over it. He refused to be comforted. We're told that he mourned for years and years. He lived every day in the grief that his son had been taken from him. And then to his great surprise, one day God comes and removes that trial from his life by revealing that his son Joseph was still alive. And so yes, sometimes God smiles upon us in his providence and removes a trial from our lives. But with that in mind, now notice our second observation from the text. This transition in government brought no relief to the Israelites. This transition in government brought no relief to the Israelites. This this change in administration, the shift from one Pharaoh in power to a new Pharaoh in power, brought about no new policy with regard to the Hebrews. They remained slaves. They remained mistreated. They remained oppressed. You just have to know that certainly some of these Israelites were hoping beyond hope that with this change in government might come a change in what's been happening to them. They're longing for relief. 
They're longing for some lessening of their burden. Maybe God is going to remove some of their trial from them by by bringing a new Pharaoh to power who will have sympathy on them. But that was not the case. Our passage says the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery. And so you see, our second truth balances out our first Our first truth was that sometimes God in His providence smiles upon us by removing our trials from us. That's how it was for Moses. But our second truth is that sometimes God's providence keeps us under a trial, even a severe trial, for decades or even a lifetime. Sometimes our trials are for a season. And sometimes our trials... Or for a lifetime. You see, Moses outlived his death sentence, but there were many Israelites that never outlived their slavery. They were born into slavery to the Egyptians, and despite all of their praying and their suffering and their crying out, they died as slaves to the Egyptians. This trial characterized their entire lives. They never knew what it was to be free. Surely they longed for another life. Surely they they longed for the life that Israel had known in Egypt before this policy of bondage had begun. But in His wisdom, God chose for many of them never to have this trial taken off of them. And so Mount Hermon, I need to say this to you, and it's not the easiest truth to say, but sometimes God for His purposes, for His glory, may place a trial on you that will last decades or your entire life. Some people are born with health defects that afflict them their entire lives. There are some who are born blind or deaf or unable to walk or unable to talk as others do. Some people are born in conditions of abject poverty with no hope of ever coming out of that poverty in their lives. Countless millions in the history of our world were born as slaves and died as slaves. And maybe there is some trial that God has placed on you which has marked your whole life or maybe a large part of your life. And maybe you've cried out to God again and again and again to free you from this burden. And God has chosen not to do so. If that's you, let me remind you of some things. First, let me remind you that you are not alone in such circumstances. Even the Apostle Paul was given a thorn in the flesh that he prayed again and again and again for God to take away and God would not take it away. Whatever it was, Paul had to live his entire life with it. Some have speculated that the thorn in the flesh was was ugliness. That Paul was a very unattractive man. Others have suggested that his thorn in the flesh was loneliness, that he was never to have a wife. Remember, many believe that he was betrothed to a wife, that he was on his way to having a wife when he was converted, and his conversion ended that proposed relationship. 
And so he spent the rest of his life a single man. Some have suggested that the thorn in Paul's flesh was was a physical sickness of some kind, some ailment that God put upon him. But whatever it was, God gave it to him. Paul says that bluntly. And God would not take it away from him. Let me also remind you that Paul was eventually able to praise God for his thorn because he saw that it was God's way of humbling him. His thorn did not keep Paul from being joyful in Christ. Paul's letters overflow with joy. Paul's letters overflow with gratitude. Paul was able to look beyond this thorn in his flesh and to see the many blessings that God had given him. And he knew that there would be a day that even that trial would be lifted off of him. If you're here and you're a Christian, you get to claim the promise of Romans 8.28 that all things, all things, all things are working for your good, even the trials that God placed on your life for a very long time. I recently heard an interview with a woman who is blind and has been blind since she was very, very young and she's now a senior adult. And she's lived her whole life blind. And she was praising God for her blindness. She said through her blindness, God had enabled her to care for so many people and to relate to so many people that otherwise she would have never been able to relate to and care for. She said, my life would not have been what my life has been if God had not placed on me this trial. Maybe you don't yet know why God gave you the trials He's given you. Maybe you don't yet see His purpose. But if you're a Christian, you can be sure that God is doing you good through every trial in your life. And He has a good purpose. So trust Him and persevere in faith as long as it lasts. Even if it means you take your final breath still under that trial only to take your next in the glory of the presence of Christ. God left Israel in slavery for many years, but He was working up to something. He was working up to the greatest event in the entire Old Testament. Throughout the Old Testament, no event is more often spoken of or lifted up as highly as God's rescue of His people from their bondage in Egypt. Again and again in the Psalms and the Proverbs and the prophets, the Israelites are called to hearken back to this great event, this great work that God did in setting His people free through many signs and many wonders. God had a purpose here. He had a plan. And His plan included the suffering of many of His people. But ultimately it was for their good and for His glory and for the salvation of many around the world. Trust your God. He knows what He's doing. Observation number three. Our third observation from the text is this. The Israelites began to pray. You see that in our passage? And the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. And it's very clear from the context who they were crying to. They were crying out to their God. Now remember, Israel has been enslaved for decades at this point. 
No doubt there had been some in Israel who had been crying out to God before this time. But this passage seems to indicate a change. Suddenly there is a unified cry to God from the people of Israel for deliverance. In other words, perhaps due to their circumstances getting worse, we suddenly find in the hearts of God's people a renewed spirit of prayer. No longer was it maybe just a few individuals here or a few individuals there. The people of Israel are now crying out to God in their distress, pleading with Him to do something about their situation. Let me ask you a question about this. Do you think it's a coincidence that just as God is preparing Moses up in Midian for this mighty, mighty work of deliverance, God is moving His people to pray in Egypt? Do you think it's just a strange accident of timing that right before God brings Moses back to Egypt and begins the plagues and begins the great work of salvation, there is suddenly within the people of God a spirit of humility and a spirit of prayer. This is not an accident. This is a truth we see again and again and again in the pages of Scripture. It's our third truth this morning. Often, just before God chooses to do something great, He moves His people to pray. Often, just before God is about to do some great work, He moves His people to pray. I simply cannot overstate how important this promise is. We could spend the rest of the sermon walking through the pages of the Bible, showing how many times God moved His people to pray and then He responded in awesome power. Or we could turn elsewhere to the pages of church history and see again and again and again how when God's people prayed, God responded in power. Every great awakening... Every great movement of the Spirit of God was preceded first by God's people being on their knees, crying out for Him to come in power. And Mount Hermon, I simply say, do we not long for God to do something great among us? Do we not long to see some great outpouring of the Spirit of God in Rocky Mount and eastern North Carolina? We should not expect God to work if we're not on our knees asking Him to work. What does He say? You have not because you ask not. When we are failing to pray earnestly, earnestly, it is because of pride and self-sufficiency on our part. When we're failing to pray pray earnestly, it's because we are content with what we have. We're content with with our circumstances. We're, We're depending on our own strength. But when God helps us to see things rightly, when we see the thousands around us on their way to hell and realize that we have no power to change even one heart, it should humble us. And it should put us on our knees begging God. Would you use us? Or don't use us. But save these people.
do a work in our land. A.C. Dixon said, when we depend upon organizations, we get what organizations can do. When we depend upon education, we get what education can do. When we depend upon man, we get what man can do. But when we depend upon prayer, we get what God can do. As Jesus was driving out the money changers from the temple, he reminded those people that his father's house was to be a house of prayer for all the nations. The church of Christ, the true temple of God, is to be used as a house of prayer for all the nations. And when our churches cease to be places of eager, earnest, desperate prayer, they also cease to be places of gospel fruit and gospel effectiveness. A fellow named Leonard Ravenhill, writing decades ago, said, The church right now has more fashion than passion. It's more pathetic than prophetic. It's more superficial than supernatural. I would suggest that that analysis still holds true in our day. What we need is not more flashiness. What we need is not more programs or human methods or human techniques. What we need is not more cultural appeal. What we need is what the people of God were doing in Exodus chapter 2. We need to be on our knees crying out for the power of God to come and to set people free from their bondage to sin. And maybe we need to be crying out that He would set us free from our bondage to carelessness. Our bondage to hard-heartedness. Our bondage to a sense of being more concerned with our own needs and issues that we no longer have hearts that are weeping for the people around us who do not know our Savior. I think we all have good reasons to be on our knees crying out to God. Our fourth observation is this. God heard the cries and the groanings of His people. God heard. Our passage says their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God and God heard their groaning. When the Bible tells us that God hears a prayer, it does not simply mean that God suddenly became aware of somebody praying. In that sense, God hears every prayer. God knows every thought. He knows every word that's ever been spoken. There has never been a word uttered in prayer that God does not know about, that God did not hear in that sense. But that's not what the word means here. When the Bible speaks of God hearing a prayer, it means God accepted it. He received it. You realize some prayers are offensive to God. The Bible even says that some prayers are an abomination to God. There are some prayers that people lift up to God that do not arouse His mercy, but arouse His anger and His righteous wrath. The Scriptures say that when people pray to God through images, or when they pray to God through a different name than the name of His Son, God refuses to hear those prayers. Oh, He heard the words, but He does not accept the prayer. When people pray hypocritically, saying one thing with their lips while their hearts long for something else, God has not promised to hear that kind of prayer. But when people pray in sincerity and in faith, 
from the heart when they humbly look to God and are casting all of their hope onto Him. He loves to receive those prayers and He loves to answer them. Those kinds of prayers, when He answers them, He gets to display His power. He gets to display His glory. His people are helped. His people are satisfied. And He is exalted. Here's our fourth truth. God hears our earnest prayers. God hears our earnest prayers. When we pray sincerely through Christ, God hears. I don't know what trial you're under right now. I don't know what groaning you are feeling in your heart. I don't know what situation has you confused or frustrated or distressed and you may be praying again and again and again and it seems like God is not hearing or answering your prayer. But if you are a Christian and you are praying sincerely through the name of Jesus, God hears your prayer. And don't assume because your situation hasn't changed yet that He hasn't heard. Have we trials and temptations? Is there trouble anywhere? We should never be discouraged. Take it to the Lord in prayer. Can we find a friend so faithful who will all our sorrow share? Jesus knows our every weakness. Take it to the Lord in prayer. Observation number five. God remembered His covenant with Abraham. That God remembered the promise He had made to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob. Our passage says God heard their groaning and He remembered His covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. It's very clear, God does not have a memory problem. God does not ever forget. Um, He does not need to remember in the way that sometimes you and I need to remember I, I lose my wallet three times a week. I misplace my keys and my cell phone. I am constantly having to stop, think for a moment. I have to remember where did I place that. God is not like that. He does not have to remember in that sense. But our verses are written from a human perspective. And from our perspective, it often seems like God has forgotten something. When the Israelites are in bondage day after day, week after week, year after year, decade after decade, and they've yet to see God move, it feels like God has forgotten them. And when God suddenly acts on their behalf, the Old Testament writes of it in this sense. He remembered His promise. The Old Testament often speaks this way of God. But notice that our passage does not say that he remembered his people. Our verse doesn't emphasize that he suddenly remembered his people. It says God remembered his covenant with Abraham. God remembers a promise he made to Abraham. And because of that promise, he's going to save these people. What was that promise? Genesis 15, 13, and 14. The Lord said to Abram, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and they will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. 
Friends, I can hardly remember something I said yesterday. And even when I make a promise, it's really easy to forget promises that we've made. God says, I am keeping a promise now that I made to Abraham 400 years ago. Actually, a little longer than 400 years ago. Abraham had not asked for this promise. God just gave it to him. And now God is keeping his promise. He always keeps his covenants. He will never let any promise he has made fall to the ground. And so here's our fifth truth this morning. God will be faithful to his covenant with us. If you're new to Christianity, you might be wondering what in the world I'm talking about. What covenant did God make with us? Sure, God made a covenant with Abraham a long time ago, but what covenant has He made with us? You know what covenant I'm talking about. The new covenant. (laughs) The promise is this. God will save from sin and bring to heaven every person who turns from their sins and trusts the Lord Jesus Christ. The gospel is the promise of the new covenant. And we are staking everything on our belief that God is going to keep that promise. I've yet to step one foot in heaven. I've never seen it. I've never seen my Savior. I've never seen my God. On complete faith, I am trusting that God is going to keep His Word. And that by believing in Jesus Christ, there's going to be a day when I'm going to go to heaven and be with Him forever. This is the new covenant. And we trust it. And we trust that God will keep it. By the way, dear Christian, if if you're a child of God, you should keep your promises too, right? Our God is a promise-keeping God. He is faithful. If you're His child, imitate your Father. And you keep your promises too. Okay, so we're at the end. Our sixth observation and our sixth truth. What is the sixth observation? It's actually two, but I've joined them together because they're closely related. God saw and God knew the plight of his people. God saw his people in their bondage and he knew their bondage. You see it, the last verse of our passage, God saw the people of Israel and God knew. In the midst of injustice, in the midst of oppression, it is a wonderful thing to know that our God knows and our God sees. We think of so many people who have been treated so badly in secret, thinking that no one was aware of their suffering. We think of women and children who have been abused, and none of their family or friends were even aware that it was going on. We think of secret bribes that have changed hands, causing the the guilty to be declared innocent, and the innocent to be declared guilty. Maybe some of you in here have have experienced oppression or injustice in a way that you thought nobody else even knew about it. Have you ever thought nobody else understands what I'm going through? Nobody else knows. Certainly the Israelites might have thought that God had forsaken them and that He was not looking upon them in their misery, but this verse says that God saw them He wasn't unaware. And then it goes further. And it uses this rich, rich word that God knew. Remember about this word know. It does not mean just sheer intellectual knowledge. (laughs) 
It means that God took to heart their suffering. It means that, that God's suffering, that, that the suffering of God's people became near to God. He was with them in their suffering. He, he had a relationship with their suffering. He was hurting with them as they hurt. He was with them in their suffering. He knew it. And Egypt, your judgment is coming. You may think that the God of the Hebrews is some small tribal deity, but He is not. He is the God of all creation. He is the true God. He sees what you're doing to His people, and He knows. The end of Exodus 2, God sees, God knows. Exodus 3, Moses, it's time. It's time. And if there's someone in here and you're abusing someone else, you're taking advantage of someone else, or you're involved in some secretive sin, God sees and God knows and He will judge. And if there's someone here who is in the midst of terrible suffering or abuse or trial, God sees and He knows. And He will come. And He will make all things right in His time. Here's our last truth. Our God sees and knows your plight. And I don't know what it is for you. But God does. He sees and He knows your plight. It is possible that nobody else in this room knows your suffering. But God knows it. And you're not on your own and you're not alone. Entrust your case to God and He will do what's right. So Mount Hermon, let me close this message by reminding you that everything we've seen in chapter 2 has been about a deliverer, a Savior, Most of the chapter was teaching us about Moses. And these last three verses have been teaching us about the people that Moses is going to to come and deliver. Moses was the Savior that God used to deliver His Old Testament people. And yet, of course, Moses is a shadow of the greater Savior who was to come. You see, while the people of Israel are groaning in Egypt, Moses is up in Midian with his family and he's shepherding his sheep and he has no idea yet that he's going to be the deliverer that God sends to bring his people out of Egypt. And yet Israel's slavery in Egypt is a picture of the slavery of all humankind. Every person on planet earth has been born into slavery. Every person on planet earth is born into slavery. And we're not born slaves to Pharaoh. We are born slaves to our sin. We are born under bondage to Satan. And we need a deliverer. We need someone greater than our sin, greater than Satan, indeed greater than our flesh. We need someone great to deliver us. Satan worked through this evil king to try and kill the baby Moses. Satan's going to work through another great king to try and kill the baby Jesus. Just like Moses, God is going to protect the baby Jesus. 
We see in this chapter how God providentially works to prepare Moses for his role of leadership. In the New Testament, we see how God providentially works to prepare Jesus for his leadership. Twelve years old, he's in the temple, he's already discussing the law with the people. We find Jesus growing in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. We saw how in this chapter Moses gave up all of the glories and the riches and the treasures of Egypt to be counted among his people, the Hebrews. Jesus is going to leave all of the glories of heaven to come down and be counted among his people so that he can deliver them. Christ is the Savior of the true Israel. Every person who will ever believe on him. Christ is the Messiah to whom Moses points. Christ is the way of salvation for everyone, including every person in this room, who will turn from your sin and trust Him. He is your only way out of bondage. He is your only way to make it to the promised land. Will you trust the Lord Jesus Christ and follow Him? I pray that we all will. Let's pray.